You're listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes, a production of the Ephesus School Network. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. The company of the angels was amazed when they beheld... Hi, this is Father Aaron Warwick with Jason Evert, and you are listening to the Teach Me Thy Statutes podcast, episode number three. Today we will be discussing Ephesians chapter 5, verses 20 through 33. Give thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This passage is probably familiar to Orthodox Christians as the epistle reading from the sacrament of marriage. How does this passage and Christian marriage in general help us to understand the mystery of the church? Well, Jason, uh, if you look at what St. Paul is saying, it's actually the reverse of your question. It's not about what a Christian or biblical marriage teaches us about the church, but rather the relationship between Christ and the church instructs us and provides us a blueprint, so to speak, of how our marriage should function. Uh, do you see what I'm saying? Yes, that makes sense. But I, I do want to make uh, take a brief sidetrack from the passage itself to discuss what you brought up, uh, namely that this text is used in the Orthodox wedding service. And I absolutely love that because it's become an unpopular passage from the Bible, but as I hope to show here, uh, it's absolutely essential to understanding how a successful and biblical marriage should function. Honestly, sometimes couples even ask me, do we have to read that passage at our wedding? I believe in most other Christian traditions, couples may select other passages to read instead of this one, which in my opinion is a real tragedy because this text properly understood is so instructive to us as married people. And again, we'll get to that soon, I'm quite certain. Uh, One of the most popular passages couples select for their wedding is where St. Paul talks about love. Uh, Love is patient, love is kind. Uh, I'm sure you're uh, all familiar with that passage. Uh, Of course, couples choose this as though it's a Hallmark card. Father, my wife loves Hallmark cards. (laughs) Well, make sure you pick one up for her on on your way home and thank her for letting you take this time to record our podcast. Uh, But just make sure to tell her not to bring it into the church and that I can only preach from the scriptures and not from the (laughs) card. 
but in our Orthodox tradition, there's no choice about using today's reading in the wedding service. You're stuck with the text at hand uh, for your wedding. And hopefully the priest or someone instructs you and also the people in attendance uh, at the wedding about what it means. In the pre-marriage preparation, I always make sure to speak with couples about the fact that we don't choose our scriptural passages and we don't write our own vows. We have the wedding service as is. And to me, this is a beautiful tradition for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, every time you go to an Orthodox wedding service, you hear your wedding service again, just with different names for a different bride and a groom, and you're reminded of what you've been called to become as a married person. And number two, as I like to tell couples, uh, the church doesn't care about what you think love is because you have no idea what love is as a young newlywed. What exactly do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is, is that we don't want to hear from some young couple who thinks they're madly in love with each other about what love means because, at best, what they have is a very immature love. A true biblical love is one that takes time to mature. Uh, I tell couples at our wedding service, uh, you're not going to use St. Paul's passage about love, the one that I referenced above, because you think you know what it means, but you don't. We aren't going to hear your vows in your Hollywood-style love story because that has no place in the church. True love, the love that Christ has for the church, as St. Paul referenced in the passage we're discussing today, uh, that love can only develop through the course of our marriages and our lives. I mean, sure, you know, in an immature way, I love my wife when we got married, and she loved me as much as we could at, at that time in our life. But now, 18 years later, uh, it's different. Uh, through 18 years, we've had some tough times and struggles. There have been times when I was deeply hurt by her and she felt betrayed by me. And that's normal. I, I, I don't know of any marriage of 18 years or more where these things and, and these feelings haven't happened. Uh, we've had children and the inevitable difficulties that go along with having children. Uh, there are joys and blessings in having children for sure, but every parent knows the difficulty and sacrifices that go along with that and how those things can take a toll on your marriage. And then there are couples who bear the burden of not being able to have children, and that can put a strain on their marriages. I mean, look around. The divorce rate is around 50% or more for a reason. Marriage is difficult. I can definitely relate here. My wife and I struggled with starting a family for several years. In fact, it was almost 10 years, um, and it was certainly the most difficult and stressful experience in our marriage of 17 years. Well, we're, we're glad that you guys were able to have children. They're a wonderful part of our parish, Jason, and uh, so thank God for them. Uh, uh, what's truly beautiful uh, is the love that is built by weathering these storms of our lives, by making it through these difficulties together and coming out on the other end of it, you know, 10, 20, 50 years later, as best friends, as partners in this life together. And that, my friend, is true love. So I tell couples, uh, when you invite me to your 50th wedding anniversary, if you're still best friends, if I'm still even alive by then, too, uh, and if you're still, quote, in love at that time, then I'll give you the mic and you can tell people about love and you can read St. Paul's passage about love being patient, how love is kind, and you'll know exactly what it means. But when you're coming to me as a newlywed and you're coming to the church to be married, uh, we don't want to hear what you have to say because you don't know what you're talking about. Just stand there and listen as the church prays for you and blesses you and reads for you what you need to hear, this passage that you read earlier at the beginning of our podcast, and then spend the rest of your life trying to put that into practice. Okay, Father, so getting back to the passage specifically, 
How does the passage from Ephesians help us understand Christian marriage? Yeah, thanks for getting us back on track, Jason. That's part of the reason you're here. I can get sidetracked too easily. Uh, The ideal for the Christian marriage uh, is that the marriage reflects the relationship between Christ himself and the church. Uh, That's what St. Paul is saying in this passage. And it relates to what I said earlier about true love being something that can only develop through the trials and the tribulations of this life. Christ's love for the church is not love for an equal. The church is not equal to Christ. Remember, Christ dies for the ungodly. He didn't love the people of his time, and he doesn't love us because we loved him first, or even because we love him back. He loves us despite the fact that we betray him. He was handed over and betrayed by his own nation, whom he came to save. And yet when he hung on the cross, he didn't condemn them, but instead prayed for them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He continued to seek out their reconciliation. That is love. As Christ taught, what good is it? What does it show that's special about us if we only love those who love us and do good only to those who do good unto us? Even the worst of sinners, he said, do that. It means very little. True love is that love which Christ showed for the church. In the context of our marriages, it's to hang in there and do what is right even when we feel our spouse has betrayed us or hurt us. That's a wonderful explanation. Thank you, Father. Yes, thank you. But uh, one caveat I do want to mention from a practical and pastoral perspective, actually even uh, from a biblical perspective, as St. Paul essentially alludes to here, and as we see elsewhere in Scripture, including in Jesus' teaching, what St. Paul is presenting is the ideal. However, there are situations where this ideal just cannot happen because of the actions or inactions of one or sometimes both of the spouses in the marriage. There are situations, unfortunately, where a spouse is abusive, physically, verbally, emotionally, or all of these. And in those situations, I don't want anyone to think true love is to, quote, stick it out. There's no place in Christian marriage for abuse. And obviously, couples will make mistakes, and I have to leave it to those listening to be able to discern, you know, if necessary, with the help of of their pastor, with a counselor, or others that they trust, you know, whether something crosses the line between normal conflict and abuse. But suffice it to say, there's no place for abuse in Christian marriage, and I don't want anyone who is being abused or has been abused to be harmed uh, by my words here or by what they think St. Paul is saying, because there's no place for abuse, and it should not be tolerated, and that's certainly not uh, what I or St. Paul are trying to say. Uh, In addition, and again, I I don't want to get too sidetracked by it, Uh, But if a spouse commits infidelity, and most especially if they do not repent of that infidelity, then the other spouse is free, and this is according to our Lord himself, they're free to divorce. Uh, But with that said, I I do know of many couples where infidelity has happened, uh, but the unfaithful spouse repented, and, and the love that now exists between these couples as they've worked out and worked through those difficulties after overcoming that infidelity, it's truly beautiful and a godly love that they have, a true reflection of Christ's love for the church. Thank you for those important points of clarification, Father. Moving on to my final question on this passage. In modern times, many people tend to focus on St. Paul's instruction for the wife, and sometimes in a very critical way, to be submissive to her husband as the head of the household. Yet his instruction to the husband to submit to his wife as a sacrifice for her 
is often either overlooked or ignored. Would you help us to understand the significance of St. Paul's teaching here, that this is not a one-way street, but that it requires submission from both sides? Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you've picked up on this point. Uh, it certainly is not a one-way street by any means. A- as you indicated, uh, people, and, and let's be honest, uh, most especially men, uh, seem to conveniently neglect one of the first lines, uh, one that introduces this text and the concept we've been talking about. St. Paul says, submitting to one another. So to say the wife has to submit to the husband while ignoring this opening of about submitting to one another is to completely butcher what St. Paul is saying. In fact, this passage actually takes it a step further. If you really examine what St. Paul is saying and doing here with this passage, the burden on the husband is far greater than on the wife. Why do you say that? Well, St. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. This is the most difficult calling because, as I mentioned earlier, Christ loved the church even though the church did not love him. Christ loved the church not because the church loved him back, but again, despite the fact that the church betrayed him. So the real burden here is on the husband. He's the head of the household, but the joke is on him, because to be the head of the household means that he must love when mistreated. He must be the one who seeks out the wife to reconcile when there is conflict. We cannot just gloss over this as men have tended to do for millennia, and to just simply stress, you know, I'm the head of the household again. Being the head of the household means laying down your own life for the others. So if we want to be the head of the household, the king of the house, then we have to rule as God and Christ rule in the Bible, which is the opposite of how we normally think of people ruling. We rule for the benefit of others, not for ourselves. And that's one of the main reasons I offered the caveat above about abuse and so forth. We cannot expect a wife to submit to us as men if if we are not submitting to her mutually, if we're not having open and honest dialogue with her about how decisions in our lives and the lives of our families impact her. If we're not ruling our household as the one who always loves even when there's strife and is the one who seeks out the other to make reconciliation, then how can she submit? If the husband does not eventually do his job, then the whole metaphor Paul uses here is going to break down. That makes sense. But what then is the responsibility of the wife? Well, the wife's responsibility is to support the husband in his high calling to be like Christ. Uh, In the context of this passage and everything I've said, that obviously doesn't mean that the wife is a doormat or doesn't have opinions that she should share. In fact, I often tell wives, of course, you know, in marriages where I know there's only normal conflict and not abuse, but I often tell them it's wrong for them not to tell the husband lovingly and in private when he's wrong or when there are issues that come up. He needs her help because none of us is already like Christ. So she has that responsibility to help him grow and learn from someone who loves him and is committed to him. Ultimately, what this all means for the husband and the wife to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church is that the two should learn to work together to express one will. Ultimately, the church's goal, and we see this most clearly and ideally in the lives of the martyrs, is to simply declare Christ's message, nothing more and nothing less. The church has no other will, no other aim, than to proclaim Christ's will as expressed in the gospel. So in a properly functional Christian marriage, the husband and the wife express one will. 
Now again, practically and pastorally, this doesn't mean they don't have discussions and negotiations and even conflict behind closed doors. But what it means is that when you have issues come up, you deal with those behind closed doors and then you express one will to the world, one will to your children, one will to your friends and your family. It shouldn't become a situation where the kids know they can play mom and dad against each other. They know when the mother speaks, they better not run to dad to try to get a different answer. Mom is presenting dad's will, and dad is presenting mom's will. Obviously, we could have an entire podcast on the topic of how we actually get to that point in our marriages. And Jason, as you know, uh, my wife and I offer a course called Dynamic Marriage at our church where we spend nine weeks facilitating couples and, and helping them and and my own wife, uh, myself and my own wife, continue to learn how to do these things, practically speaking, so that our marriage uh, better reflects the relationship between Christ and the church. Thank you, Father. For me, as a husband and a father, today's discussion really hits home, and I hope our listeners take away a few key points. First, that love is immature initially, and only through shared struggle and perseverance do we ultimately reach a maturity in our love. And as it relates to Christ and the church, Christ loves us not because we love him, but in spite of the fact that we betrayed him. We are no better than the worst of sinners if we only love those who love us in return. And finally, Father Aaron clarified that the husband has the greatest responsibility in the marriage, that he must sacrifice for his wife if he is to expect her to submit, and that in all things husband and wife must work together to express one will. Thank you for listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes. We hope you tune in next week for a new episode. Alleluia, glory to thee, O God. Alleluia, 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 glory to thee, O God. O our God and our hope, glory to thee.